This week there was a video that went absolutely viral. Many of you probably saw it. If you didn't see it, then you should Google it when you get home this afternoon with your family. But it was a BBC News reporter who was uh, doing some correspondence with the main office there. And uh, he, was, he was doing his correspondence from his home office when in the middle of the report, his daughter breaks in the room. Right? Many of you saw this. What a fantastic, what a fantastic video, right? And uh, she didn't just walk in, if you saw it. She marched in. She just walked in, uh, 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 I, you know, walking in the club, like, she just marched in, and it was fantastic. He was interviewed by the New York Times, and I read an article where he said something really brilliant. This is how he described it. He said, my real life punched through the fake cover I had created for television. What a great statement. Can we not all relate to our real lives punching through? Um, a facade that we've wanted to create with somebody romantically, a situation we tried to uh, create a facade corporately. Um, We've all had that experience where real life punches through. And um, it's funny, but really what I want to, the reason I'm kind of bringing it up is not for the sake of just saying, hey, did you see this cool video? But because there's something about that little girl, the heart of that little girl, that gets to... Um, the heart of the text that we are going to read in just a moment from Galatians chapter 3. That little girl, she marched in there with this great boldness. She, just, she was watching the television in the other room with her, with her mom, and the mom was taping it, if you've read the story. And uh, she looked on the TV and saw her dad. Hey, I know that guy. He's probably over there in that other room. That's probably why he, I see what's going on here. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to see him. Right? And she just marched in with this great boldness. You know, um, to borrow from Tim Keller, you can't just march into the king's bedroom in the middle of the night and ask him for a glass of water, but you can if you're his child. And she knew that. She just had this access. And she just operated with this, just this incredible childlike uh, uh, freedom, knowing that she just had this great access to her dad. So I just love it. It's a great picture. Today's text is in Galatians 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 26, and I'm going to go to chapter 4 and verse 7. And what we're getting at here is our privilege in grace because of our adoption by grace. The first three chapters of this book, if you're joining us this morning and you haven't been here the last few weeks, Paul has written this letter because he's fighting a perversion in the church. The gospel is total substitution, but the perversion of the gospel is you need to bring a contribution. Paul's been battling that, he's been fighting it, and so what we're about to get to right now Um, is the pinnacle of Paul's argument, and it's the climax of the gospel, which is this. You are God's kids. Not only does that mean something, but that does something. And so as we come to the text, this is what we want our hearts to grasp and increasingly grasp, and this is what we want to pass on to our children so that they enjoy and grasp this as well. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. For though he's the owner of everything, 
he is under the guardians and managers until a date set by his father. And in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Now we can't appreciate our privilege in God's grace unless we can enjoy and understand our adoption by God's grace. And so I'm going to borrow from uh, Sinclair Ferguson. He's a Scottish theologian, a professor at Redeemer Seminary in Dallas, Texas. He says this, The notion that we are the children of God is the mainspring of Christian living. To be God's children, enjoying life to the full with God, is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. It's beautiful. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. The Father planned your adoption. The Son accomplished it. And the Spirit is now renewing you to enjoy it. And so as we go to this text, we're going to unpack it and we're going to really look at two things. Firstly, what are we given by adoption? And secondly, how do we enjoy what we've been given by adoption? What have we been given? How do we enjoy it? So first of all, what are we given by adoption? As, as we just read that through, if you kind of break out the text, you're going to find that we're given this great grace that covers our sin, and then it empowers us not to be slaves to our sin, and then it covers us again those days that we fall back into sin. We've been given this incredible identity, and with this new identity comes a sense of hope and peace and assurance and rest and humble confidence. We've been given all of these things. When you look at verse 19, you're going to see that he says that Jesus is the seed of Abraham's offspring. In other words, this great promise to Abraham and all of the blessing and favor and acceptance that was promised to Abraham, Christ was the one that earned that. Christ was the one that fulfilled God's law perfectly so that he could obtain that. Christ was the one that earns it all, gets it all, and then gives it all to you. That's the beauty of adoption. That's how we understand uh, how this great blessing comes to us. He earned it, he got it, and then he gave it to us. When you look at verse 26, Paul gives us the goal of the gospel, that we're God's adopted children. The, 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 what the gospel is, is God's great grace for us, but the goal of the gospel is that we would be his adopted children, and that we begin to live out the implications of that amazing adoption. Now, what, you, what we need to notice is that our, our sonship, being God's children, that is not something that we work towards. That is not something that we're aiming at. That is not something that we are achieving. That's something that's done. And that's key. There's a big difference between approaching the, 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 the scriptures, like, if I do these things, I am becoming God's child. That was the problem in Galatia. That's what Paul's actually fighting here, is that they're saying, I am becoming worthy of God's adoption. We're not becoming. We're living out of a state of being. What we are becoming is mature, but what we are not becoming is God's child. The problem in Galatia was that they equated 
the life that they were living with validation of their adoption. And they were saying, if I'm good enough, God will accept me. And that's dead wrong. It's that God has already accepted you. You already are a child of God if your faith is in Christ. You're, you, the life that you and I are living is not adding or taking away from that adoption. It's an adoption. It's a legal adoption because of what Christ did. But what we are, what we are doing is we're living out of the beauty of that. I'll explain it this way. I have three children. I have a 19-year-old, I have a 15-year-old, and I have a 10-year-old. And I would never use the language. You will never hear me say that my 19-year-old is better than the 10-year-old. But you hear all the time in the church, and you've all grown up with it, about how to be a better Christian. But you'll hear me say all the time that my 19-year-old is more mature than my 10-year-old. There's a difference between maturity. But you see, if I talk about one being better, I'm now having, a, I'm now having an identity conversation. And we have all grown up, probably, with some sort of a religious residue that's communicated that if I do this, I'm better, and if I don't do this, I'm worse. What what Paul is trying to get the church to grasp is what Christ did was so magnificent, you're not operating in 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 a continual state of becoming God's child. You are operating in a continual state of becoming more mature, living out the implications of that gospel, living a life to the glory of the one who saved you in grace from sheer love, you're, oh yeah, there's that, that's happening. But you're not becoming better. You're his child. He loves you, and we're going to unpack this, and you're going to see how powerful it is. It's important that our faith is centered around, and our Christian understanding that we're passing on to our children is centered around being and not doing, because our pragmatic North American minds are going to associate that doing with achieving and becoming. There. I've done it. I, I had a great week. God is now happy with me. God is now accepting me. Do you see the problem with this? <laughs> That's right. Thank you. I'm getting some help in the second row. That was good, Wessel. That was very good. Right on cue. I should... <clears throat> and I want to say something really quick to the ladies, because this whole text keeps using the word sons. And I want to say something that's, that, that, that the text gives us that's very profound. You see, God is not actually diminishing dignity by talking about sons. And we would be committing a, a, a linguistic and a historic tragedy if we just said, let's just change the Bible from where it says sons and let's change it to say children because that's more inclusive. Here's what we need to understand. In the ancient world, the daughters did not get an inheritance. The daughters got nothing. So what Paul is actually doing by calling the women sons is he is assigning a stratospheric dignity to women that was millennia ahead of its time. It was actually Paul's way of sticking it to the religious system, sticking it to the cultural system. By, by calling women sons in the ancient world, he was actually saying, everything that, you're, that, that your culture is saying is only, uh, uh, the, the, the eldest son is only worthy of having in God and in Christ, the women have an inheritance. So we would, we would, we would commit a huge error if we, if we change it to not say sons, because that's how we understand the gravity of this text, the gravity of what Paul is saying. And, by the way, God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. So this morning, it calls ladies sons. But if I was preaching out of Revelation 19 or 2 Corinthians 11, you know, or, uh, or Ephesians 5, then I would be calling all the men brides, right? So God does this. throughout his word, very specifically to communicate the gravity of his grace. 
So don't be offended, ladies, when you read this and you say, sons, because what it's saying is, women have an unprecedented dignity in that, in, at, the, at that point that the culture just wasn't giving them. And it just showcases God's great love and, and, and uh, puts it on display. So in addition to this adoption image, Paul then moves into this, this clothing image. So what have we been given by adoption? So to, to show us you know, what we've been given, he uses this phrase, you see it there in verse 27, if you've been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. Another appropriate translation in the Greek would be to say, you've been baptized in Christ, you've been clothed in Christ. What is it with this clothing metaphor? Paul loves the clothing metaphor, by the way, because he uses it in four letters. He uses it in Galatians, he uses it in Ephesians, he uses it in Colossians, and he uses it in Romans. Because the thing about clothing is clothing gives us a few things. Clothing says something about our identity. Clothing says something about our acceptance. Clothing is about closeness, and clothing is about imitation. So, for example, take the identity thing. Your clo- all the clothes that you chose say something about you. What you. When you go into the mall and you see something, what you buy and don't buy, it says something about you. Right? If you have two things in your closet, you just rotate them for, forever, that says something about you. If you have a thousand things in your closet and it's never enough, that says something about you. I mean, it just says something about us. When you're shopping for somebody else and you pick up something off the rack and you say, oh my gosh, so-and-so would love this. Why? Because there's this association of who we are with our clothing. So when Paul says, you've been clothed in Christ, in other words, in other words, our ultimate sense of identity is beyond all of the other things that we've chosen to define ourselves by. And so the clothing metaphor, it, re, it, it, it says, I'm not, I'm not ultimately identified by all of these classifications right, of, of the culture. I'm ultimately finding my great rest, my great identity in, the, in Christ. And secondly, clothing, nothing is closer to you than your clothes. Right? And nothing is closer to you than Christ. Right? You're clothed in Christ. There's nothing closer. So Paul gives us this, this picture of being clothed in Christ because of the Spirit of God. Imitation, you think of it this way. You put on clothes... And there's, a, there's an element of imitation to that. And Paul uses the, you know, because the only reason we choose the things that we, we choose is because we saw what we're wearing someplace else, liked it, something, it appealed to something inside us, and now we're imitating that. I'm not making a moral commentary, I'm just saying that's how it works. Right? You chose this and not that because this appealed to you and that didn't. Right? I'm not, it's not a moral, don't freak out, I'm just saying Now, the reason why that's important is because being clothed in Christ, now what this means is, now there's an imitation that we would desire. We would put on his virtues and want to live with Christ as our example, but only because we're reveling in the fact that he's firstly our gift. So the only reason we would want to imitate him, the only reason that our hearts would desire his virtue, is because we've been clothed in his great grace and his great mercy and his great love. And it's now creating something in us. And then you've got this acceptability that you're, you're, when you're clothed, you're accepted. That was in the ancient world and that's today, right? In the ancient world, you would wear certain things in certain places to be accepted. And if you didn't, it wasn't. It's staying that way today. If after the service today, you decide to go out for lunch and you take your shirt off, good luck getting into the restaurant. Not acceptable, right? If, if, you, if, uh, if I walk out in the middle of the street in my civilian clothes and I try and stop traffic on the 401, not acceptable, but if I'm wearing the right clothing, totally acceptable. If I'm wearing an officer's uniform and I have a badge, traffic will stop. I walk out in the street, it will stop. Because our clothing creates an acceptability. And so Paul says we're clothed in Christ. That does something to our psyche. That does something to the way we relate. We become like that little kid. 
with that radical confidence that busts into her dad's office. Uh-uh-uh, gonna see my dad. Dad loves me. Here I come to make his day. Right? Just this great love for God. This childish dependency on God that overflows now into your vocation and your recreation and everything that you're up to on Monday. And so in verse uh, 28, Paul says, what else have you been given in your adoption? He says, well, <clears throat> you've been given this great unity because in verse 28 there, he removes all these barriers. He removes the cultural barrier. He removes the class barrier. He removes the gender barrier. And the reason he removes all those things is not to say that we aren't unique and distinct and valuable, and, we're, and now we're just interchangeable. Oneness is sameness. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, in terms of value conversation, we're all equal before God, and we all now relate with this great and this beautiful unity before God, which is powerful, because what that enables us for us to do here at Redeemer is not create a Christian ghetto where the only people that you're willing to associate with, care for, share your life with, are those who are all like you. Well, I can't reach out to you because you're not like me. I come from this kind of family. You come from that. I'm in this social status. You're there. I'm from this. I'm this. I'm successful in this way. You're not. It it erases all of that. It creates this beautiful unity and diversity in the church because we've all been welcomed graciously in Christ, and now we are all relating to one another in that gracious welcome. This is what it creates for us. And so, unity that's centered around this adoption. It creates a culture where the poor among us, whether it's economically or whether it's emotionally, or, but the poor among us don't need to feel inferior, and the wealthy among us don't need to feel resented, because the adoption creates this beautiful unity. Those who are sick among us don't need to feel like second-class Christians, because there's others here who are healthy. Those who are uneducated here don't need to feel like second-class Christians because there's those who are educated. Those who have come from broken marriages or in the midst of marriage challenges can't, don't need to look at the people who seem to have their marriage altogether and feel inferior, which, by the way, nobody in here has their marriage altogether. We're all in this beautiful place of learning to love each other more deeply as we go along. And so the adoption removes all of this comparison gives us this great uh, unity that we get to enjoy. So the adoption removed all these class barriers, and it actually changed the way that the church related. Now you might uh, look at this as well. He says something powerful. He says, there's neither slave nor free. Now even though Paul is not looking for primarily societal implications, he's primarily looking at the church, it did end up having societal implications. Because the idea that there was a dignity and there was neither slave nor free caused the churches to relate differently. You're now coming to a church where the elders in the church, those who were leading the church and caring for the church, were slaves in most cases. And so if you showed up to church and you were a slave owner in the ancient world, you're now getting all of your paradigms shifted, right? Because it's like, well, in society, I'm, a, I'm, I'm the big shot, but then I come into the church and now we're all equal. And now I've got a, a person who's caring for me and loving me and they're actually a slave. You see this? So it creates this beautiful unity. So that's why we don't build our churches and say, well, who would be leading in the culture? Well, then they should be leading in the church. Maybe, maybe not. Right? Otherwise, we commit all kinds of, you know, philosophic political errors and saying things like, well, if, if you're good-looking, you're probably nice. You know, we all know that's true. Right? If you're wealthy, you're probably a good leader. We all know that's true. Not necessarily. 
These are all, these are all ancient philosophies of taking kind of temporal things and calling them virtue, which is what they did then and which is what we kind of continue to do now. So the gospel and our adoption erases all that and enables us to relate differently. But what did that do? Culturally, it had a massive impact. And eventually, over time, that Christian virtue of dignity and unity and diversity caused a gentleman named Wilbur Wilberforce, uh, William Wilberforce to lead the charge on the slave ab- uh, abolition of the slave trade. And he did that, and that flowed from his Christian worldview that there's neither slave nor free. There's a dignity here. So it did have societal implications later. But Paul's primary concern was how the church was relating, which is my primary concern, as how we are all relating and caring for one another, right? In that way. So this is all these beautiful gifts of what we've been given in our adoption, because the gospel is the great equalizer. In Christ we're all alive, and without him we're all dead. The great equalizer. The gospel's not a crutch for weak people, it's a defibrillator for dead people. And we were all dead, and now we're alive in Christ. And it, and it unites us all. So this adoption, you see, it frees you from relating to other people in this room with superiority, Because you're reminded that the reason you're here is God's grace and not your merit. And your adoption also frees you from relating other people in this room with inferiority. Because you also know that in your adoption, your inheritance transcends the material. Your ultimate inheritance, it transcends. And so, in that, as the grace of God grips our hearts, jealousy releases its grip on our hearts. This is the, the beauty of this adoption and this picture that Paul, Paul gives us of what the gospel does. And so that's why, starting in chapter 4, in the first couple of verses, he talks about that status change. Out of slavery and into sonship, right? And again, ladies remembering that. Out of slavery and into that inheritance, right? Including everybody. Because why Paul's bringing this up is the church forgot their adoption. So they weren't relating to each other in, in terms of adoption. Imagine the culture we would have here in the church if we saw we're not relating to one another in terms of our adoption, but we were relating to one another in terms of comparison of all of the class systems, how fractured that would, how fractured that would be. Then we'd all have to be homogenous and think the same, be the same, and have the same culture, and have the same ideas, and drink the same soup, but that's just not the gospel. The beautiful diversity here is we can have all kinds of cultures from people different backgrounds come and worship together and relate and love each other that way. If we forget our adoption, which is what Galatia was doing, you're immediately into work. And then what that's like is that's like being given a great gift and then looking at the one who gave you the gift and saying, wow, thank you. Just hold on to that. I'm going to earn it. That's what was going on. That's what Paul was saying. No, we're not going to have any part of that. Our adoption means that there's no need to earn God's acceptance by our work because we already have it by God's grace. I was teaching on this text in, in London, the city of London, uh, Ontario, a couple of years ago. And this elderly lady came up to me and she was crying and crying and crying. And she said, if, uh, she said for the first time in my life, I, I feel like I can rest, like God will accept me. She said, my whole life... I was worried that I was, I was, I was going to die and I wasn't going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because I hadn't done enough. 83 years old, tears streaming down her face. She's saying this to me. She goes, this is the first time I've ever felt like I can just relax and like that God accepts me and loves me. And I was so mad, I wanted to burn the whole building down. You know? Because I've, I've come out from that. Many of you have come from that idea or wrestle with it at times, right? 
And I said to her, I said, no. I said, <clears throat> that's, I said, no, you will hear well done, good and faithful because you are united to the only one who is good and the only one who is faithful by God's standards. Clothed in Christ or clothed in your own works? You're clothed or you're naked. I mean, those are the options. And we're clothed in Christ. And she's trying. And she said, you know, but, but I always listen. And she names this big mega guy out of America. You know, I always listen to this guy and he always said that we... And I said, you know, ma'am, <laughs> but he's got such a big ministry, how can it be wrong? Don't mistake <laughs> church size for orthodoxy. It's a bad idea. And what Paul is getting at is what was setting that poor 83-year-old woman free, that Christ is enough and that we're in him. And so in verse 4, as Paul continues to show what we get, he says that Christ was born of a woman under the law in order to redeem us. Born under a woman because he's a real human being, fully God, fully man, pretty important. Because it was man that got us in this problem in the first place, and it was going to be a divine God-man who was going to save us from our problem in the first place. So he's born under a woman. But then he was born under the law. And it says that because he was, Jesus was born in a state of obligation. You know how humiliating that is? You're the God of the universe, but you're born into a state of obligation. And so he was born into that state of obligation for us. And so that word redeem is the same word that they would use to describe a slave who is released from their slavery because somebody came in and paid in full. And if you look at ancient documents from the ancient world written in, in Hellenistic Greek, there are documents that when the bill is paid, it's written across them to telestai, paid in full. Do you know what Christ's last word was on the cross? To telestai, it is finished, paid in full. Our adoption's been paid in full. This is the, the gift of what we've been given. And so we are then received, and we've got this great privilege. You know, wealthy men in the ancient world, if you're a wealthy man, and you had all this land, and you had all this wealth, and you had no children, it's documented that some of them would adopt some, some of their slaves who worked in their, on, in their fields or worked in their homes. And they would adopt the slave, a faithful slave, or, or otherwise, they would adopt a slave that they loved. And because, of course, in 2017, you say the word slavery, and it's, it's horrific, which it is, and it's terrible, which it is. But we need to understand that in the ancient world, some slavery was horrific in the ways that you think. But most slavery, just the term slavery meant you weren't an owner. So by ancient standards, unless you're a business owner today, you're a slave, just to put that in context for you. So it... So an, a wealthy slave owner who didn't have a child would adopt a slave, and the moment that they adopted the slave, that slave went from slave to son and had an instant inheritance. But they never earned. Born a slave and now adopted as a son with an instant inheritance. That's a picture of you and I. The only way for us to grasp that would be if we went to a region in the world where there was a horrific, abhorrent slave market and we watched a rich man come in and save a slave and redeem the slave and pay the slave's debt and then give the slave everything. That's the picture of the adoption. That's the picture of what we've been given. This immediate inheritance. By birth, we were all slaves to sin and inevitable death. But by grace, we've become children of adoption and we've inherited this eternal life. And so Paul has to separate the law from the gospel because it's impossible to understand your adoption. It's impossible to enjoy your adoption if you're mixing the law and the gospel together. 
Otherwise, it's like the 1932 Little Orphan Annie scene where, where Daddy Warbucks comes and he adopts Little Orphan Annie and he loves Orphan Annie. He wants to treat her like his very own daughter. And then she gets into the house and uh, she says, well, I guess we should start with the floors. Because her paradigm is, I have to earn my keep. That's how we'll end up relating to God, like they did in Galatia, if we don't understand what we've been given in adoption. And so, good news. Your inheritance, your blessing, your favor in God is just as assured as your pardon. It is just as assured. You're not working to earn your keep. You're actually receiving Jesus as gift, which is what begins to reform and renew and reorient your heart, to desire Jesus as example. But Jesus as example, without Jesus as gift, will crush you every time. Right? We used to joke uh, with our uh, kids at the dinner table, the WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? And you know, before our understanding of the grace of God and the gospel, we would think of the what would Jesus do, and it's just immediate guilt every single time. What would Jesus do? Well, not what I'm up to. You know, that's and so then when we, when, we, uh, when we came to the amazing grace of the gospel, we, used to, we joked about it. Not that you don't want to do what Jesus do, but it's, what has Jesus done? And uh, I think Nigel was t- telling me he was at school one time, and one of the kids were talking about, what would Jesus do? And, and he said, well, he would do it perfectly. <laughs> which we aren't doing it perfectly. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And it's not until we receive him as gift that we desire him as example. And so in closing, how do we enjoy this life? If that's everything we've been given, how do we enjoy it? Well, we enjoy life in God as our hearts experience this renewal and refreshing, and it's by the Spirit. And I'm going to unpack this for a second. In verse 6, he says that God sends his Spirit. And that's to parallel verse 4. God sent his Son, God sends his Spirit. So there's this Trinitarian tidal wave in the redemption story of the Father planning, the Son accomplishing, and the Spirit applying. The Son does the saving. And the Spirit does the applying. The Son's work is outside you. It's securing your salvation. But the Spirit's work, this is inside us, giving us assurance, giving us renewal, giving us reform. Right? The Son rescues us from the penalty of sin, and the Spirit renews us so we're not living daily in slavery to sin. The Son's work is external. It's objective. It's legal. It's true whether you feel it or not. That's the Son's work. Regardless of how you feel about it, it's true because of what he did. 33 AD, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified on a Roman cross. Three days later, the tomb is empty. It's objective. He did it for you. How you feel about it is not relevant. But the Spirit's work is not external. The Spirit's work is internal. It's subjective and it's experiential. And it enables our hearts to cry out. It enables us to have the swagger of that little girl marching into her daddy's office. That con- that confident, dependent love for the Father. That's what the Spirit's work does. That's why Paul uses that word, Abba, Father. That Abba isn't even a word. It's a Hebrew word, and it's not even a word. You know when kids are very little, before they can say Dada and Mama, and, and the kids just go, ah, 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 when they're crying, ah, ah, ah. what's the matter? That's what that word is in the Hebrew. Okay, just to give you a picture of this. And the reason why Paul gives that is because Christ's work is outside us, but the Spirit's work makes it experiential so that our Christian faith isn't just an intellectual you know, exercise. 
We're not, we're not uh, heads on sticks. Humans are lovers more than thinkers, if I was to borrow from James K. Smith. Our, our hearts are more like stomachs, and we live our whole lives trying to satisfy our appetites. And we chase a thousand things, but the grace of our adoption comes in and quenches that hunger and quenches that thirst and begins this beautiful renewal. And that's the power of the Spirit. And so the saving work of the, of, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together means that our Christian faith is not just intellectually satisfying, it's also emotionally satisfying because the Spirit's work is increasing and it's, it's, it's uh, continual and it's growing. It's not an unpredictable, sporadic, mystical experience where we hope to feel God in a moment. But the Spirit's work is an invitation to an ever-enriching experience of rest and renewal that increases over our lifetime. So being led by the Spirit is something that grace gives us. But this being led by the Spirit is not having God whisper life decisions in your ear. Not even the apostles had that kind of clarity. But being led by the Spirit is about having our hearts reoriented to love what God loves so that our ethic and our relating and our choices is all being Spirit-led out of that renewal. And so that's how we over time, increasingly enjoy that adoption by crying out to God in prayer, by going to God in prayer. Con- you know, consider this, <clears throat> that the language that Paul gives them is Abba, but they're Greek. And I'm going to close with this. Why would Paul tell a bunch of Greeks a Hebrew word? It's because the word Abba is the same word Jesus used when he was talking to his father in Mark 14. That's how Jesus described him. And Paul turns to the Greeks and he says, you, because of your adoption, relate to God that way. And God now loves you like you're his only son. He was the wealthy one who saved the slave and gives the slave the inheritance and now relates to the slave like his only son. God's love for you is that deep. It's that powerful. It is the scandal of his grace. It is the richness of his acceptance towards you. And that's the degree with which he relates to you. He looked down at Jesus and he said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when God looks down on you, church, he looks at you and I and he says, This is my beloved child. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father planned it. The son accomplished it. The spirit is now, right now, applying it. You would live in that beauty, that freedom, that confidence. Let's pray.